Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. Michael Leckie is a Renaissance man. This thoughtful architect has a vast range of talents and passions. Everything that he does is intentional, with great care for detail and with his curious nature. The principal of award-winning Leckie Studio, he's also the co-founder of the Backcountry Hut Company, which designs stunning minimalist prefab cabins. Michael also spent years playing semi-pro squash and once spent five months surfing the Baja, living on a beach in a van. In this conversation, we explore his childhood experiences where his love of nature comes from, the values of his architecture practice and his approach to design, and what about his daughter that he's most proud of. The world is a far more fascinating place with Michael in it, and to observe what he designs for the benefit of others is truly an honor. Please enjoy this incredible conversation with the wonderful Michael Leckie. Michael, welcome to The Crafts. Thanks, May. Great to see you. I know. It's so wonderful to see you. It's been it's been a while. It has been a while. Yeah. And a lot's happened in the world since the yes. last time we talked. I know. Our last deep dive was, I think, a year and a half ago, we were just saying. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love to connect the dots on how I met guests. And we met at our mutual friend Roy Yan's wedding. And Roy's going to be an um, upcoming podcast guest as well. But yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. And I think that we connected... Um, more so on the last day, uh, I remembered you were an architect and I was still working at Rennie at oh, that that's point. Right. Yes, yes. And uh, I think I extended an art invite and the rest is history and now we're friends. Here we are. Yeah. Here, yeah. here we are. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I admire most about you is your immense curiosity and also, you know, your intentionality. But we can get back, you know, to that later. But I imagine that you were very curious as a child. So tell me about growing up. Your parents, you grew up on the East Coast, right? Uh, I grew up in Toronto, sort of just on the edge of North Toronto and North York. It was, you know, I mean, thinking back on it, it was a rather, you know, plain urban slash suburban Canadian childhood. Um, Probably captured well by the work of someone like Douglas Copeland in Souvenir of Canada, you know, this idea about the unconscious Canadian identity that, you know, there were certain commonalities um, in this sort of suburban life that, that, you know, became touchstones of of a generation in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we spent a lot of time uh, roaming around, exploring construction sites as kids, the, you know, the smell of cut plywood and fresh concrete. Uh, And it was sort of equal parts kind of urban in a way. Um, I went to high school downtown in the center of the city in the annex. And so that was a, you know, a bit of a commute from the time I was 11 onwards. Uh, But then I was fortunate also to spend a lot of time in nature. Um, And the interesting thing about that is for all the time that I spend in nature now and that I the affinity that I have for spending time in nature that I've had since I was a young child I have never really spent much time in nature with my parents mm. we've never been camping we've never really been hiking um, so all of that I think actually came from 
I would like to think a kind of thoughtful series of experiences that they created for me, even though it might not have been things that resonated with them. Mm. So these would have been things like, you know, Boy Scouts, summer camp. Mm -hmm. uh, I would get shipped off to summer camp uh, yeah. every summer for a number of weeks. And as a as an introverted child, it was I remember just being terrified at the beginning. Yeah. Um, but all of these experiences, I think, kind of shape you and, and you know, help you overcome a kind of introversion or an introspection when you're young. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what were your parents like? Well, my mother um, was going, I remember she was going to school uh, when I was in elementary school and she was training uh, to be a computer programmer and a systems analyst. No way. And it was a really interesting time because that was a very... Um, you know, sort of new and evolving field. Uh, so this would have been late 70s, mm -hmm. uh, early 80s. Yeah. Um, and she had immigrated from Poland uh, and had a, you know, a very challenging um, childhood growing up. And it really, you know, she was very quick to put things into perspective for me whenever I would complain about something, mm -hmm. um, you know, how privileged uh, an upbringing Um that I was that I had or that I was benefiting from. Uh, her father had lost both his legs in the in the Second World War wow. as part of the resistance in Poland, and you know she had several siblings, and she managed to flee the country. and And uh, you know she met my father. He was in law school teaching English uh, in the evenings, mm. um, and so he was um, he was a lawyer. He worked in corporate law. But he would be the first person to tell you that that was not his calling. Uh, what and, do you think his calling was, if you were going to say? Well, I've talked to him about it, and I think he would be best suited as a teacher. Well, that's it's, it's probably immaterial what I think, but that's what he would say. Mm -hmm. um, and he's, you know, wonderful and kind and generous with his time and, and patient. And so even though he found himself in his career in law, and he ultimately ended up being in-house counsel for a larger company. You know, his passion lay outside of work. And I would have to say that I really benefited from that. Mm -hmm. um, because again, as a sort of bookish, introverted child, he was always dragging me outside. And I think he grew up without his father really in the picture. And he would drag me outside, let's go throw a football, let's throw a baseball, play catch, let's do these kinds of things. And I was always a little reluctant and resistant. He would say, my father was never around when, you know, when I was growing up to do these things. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's really important that I do these things with you. And, and you know, it was, it was fantastic, I think, spending that much time with him doing all those different things, which really ultimately help develop, uh, you know, a sense of proprioception and, you know, an aptitude for, for sort of sports and, and activities. And you're very hands-on in a lot of the things you do, right? Like you're crafty, like you like to make things. I really like to make things. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's ironic in the context of, you know, my architecture practice, which is really only six years old, five coming up on six years old, that we've relied very, very heavily on a digital methodology. Mm. Um, and, it, and it served us very well so far, um, an emphasis on digital modeling, rendering. Right. Uh, but one of the things that we're 
really starting to move into as a more analog form of process. And it's something that I'm very, very excited about. Mm, okay, let's put a pin on that one. I like to explore that one later on down the line in our conversation. But I do want to take it back because I do remember you saying that at a very young age, you knew you wanted to be an architect. Yeah, and it and it's funny. I, I, I can look back on that now and put the pieces together and really understand that that's what that sort of aptitude or affinity really was. But at the time, I had no idea. And I had a naive idea about architecture and the notion of drawing and drawing blueprints and plans and designs for things. And and in a way, that was uh, an aptitude that my aunt really picked up on. And she always tells me that, you know, when I was four years old, I said I wanted to be an architect. And it was probably because I used to love to draw and sort of just make small assemblies of things. Mm. And that's the part of it that, you know, was the sort of unknown part. I remember, you know, I'd be sitting in the forest or we'd be at cub camp or scout camp and I just would be laying sticks one against the other in a very particular order and mm. was so fascinated about the proportion and the geometry about these sort of spatial constructs. You know, and these sticks would be the size of matches. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, and then they would be kicked over and off we would go. But it was just this kind of thing. And I couldn't really necessarily describe the meaning of it. But there was something there that always fascinated with that always fascinated me. And, and you know, maybe at that time it might have been more in the vein of Andy Goldsworthy's kind of installations in, in terms of, you know, gathering and examining patterns and textures in nature and how these mm. things kind of went together and the, and the sort of, you know, structures that are inherently found in, 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 in the world of nature. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And you've had such an interesting path. So I'd, I'd like to explore that. Um, we were discussing beforehand, you played semi-pro squash, <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which we definitely should get into. But you also worked in uh, forestry project management, I remember. And you lived in a van on the beach in Baja for five months surfing. And I believe you were in Greece as well doing an architecture internship. Was that yes. Greece? Yes. All of those yeah. things are true. Yes. And then working <laughs> at firms in both Canada and Europe. Are you a follow your heart kind of person? That's, that's I, I quite would, a windy path, and I, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have to say that I have always had a um, inherent tension between feeling what I was truly passionate about and wanted to do versus what I felt I should do. Mm. Uh, and it's probably the kind of contrast of those things, um, you know, that has created a lot of interest. And, and so... You know, for example, when I was coming out of high school, all th through high school, I was playing a very competitive level of squash at a, at a national level, competing in Canadian and, and U.S. junior nationals and and uh, won a few titles back in the day. And as a result of that, I was fortunate to travel a lot, you know, in, in my sort of early mid-teens. Um, and, and that was a really interesting and, and eye-opening experience. And, and at the time of transition from high school to um, university, I was at that time really interested in studying architecture. Um, and, you know, to make a long story short, I had been uh, being recruited to go down and play squash uh, at American Ivy League schools. And in the end, financially, the whole thing sort of fell through. 
Um, and so when it came time to pick a school, the two options that I had left on the table were um, University of Toronto and University of Western Ontario, largely because those were the only two schools that you could play a very high level of squash um, and stay in Canada. Mm. Uh, and U of T had an architecture program. University of Western Ontario didn't. And U of T, um, U the University of Toronto School of Architecture was you know, probably five or six blocks from the University of Toronto schools where I went to high school. And the thought of spending another five years, because I had just spent five years in that one location downtown, another five years in that same neighborhood was, you know, what wasn't appealing to me. And so mm -hmm. I sort of followed, you know, my passion for, for squash at that time and, and had a really great experience competing in the NCAA Squash League um, throughout my time at Western. But the downside was there was nothing in terms of um, academic programming for me that resembled anything creative. Mm. Um, and of course, with an interest in the natural world, I found myself in biology. Uh, and there was a time when, you know, uh, listening to voices around me, it seemed like it would be reasonable that I would go down a pre-med path. Mm -hmm. uh, and for lack of anything else I had started down that path and and uh, interestingly had an internship working in the Department of Anesthesiology at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Oh I didn't know that. And we were doing medical research um, with patients who had implantable cardioverter defibrillators and we were researching the effect of the anesthetic propofol on heart function. And wow. so the summer that I spent doing that was a real eye-opener into spending time in a, you know, in a hospital setting and what it was like to do that kind of work. Uh, and very, very eye-opening. Mm. Um, and, you know, I had, I had looked at other career paths as well coming out of biology. My, my final studies uh, at the University of Western Ontario were, or now Western University as it's known, were in genetics. Uh, genetics and philosophy. And that part was enormously fascinating for me. It was the, the spatial thinking and the speculation in terms of designing experiments about what was happening geometrically at a molecular level was really, really fascinating. Mm. Um, but as I spent more and more time in the lab, I realized that it was the intangible quality of always imagining something that you could never touch. Right. Uh, that that really made me realize that that wasn't the path for me. Mm -hmm. And so you're tactile, aren't you? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And so it was, you know, um, after finishing my undergrad that I just bought a van, loaded it full of surf surfboards and, and um, yeah, went down to Mexico. Yeah. Uh, and that was an amazing experience. It was sort of, you know, after years of, of undergrad university and you know, struggling a little bit to find my way. This was a, a huge indulgence. But it was also a time of sort of deep, you know, kind of soul searching and meditation. And one of the things that that really struck me, and it was an, it was a, an odd dream for a kid who grew up in Toronto to have always felt an affinity for surf and for the ocean. Right. But it was something that I remember feeling since since I was, you know, very young. Yeah. Um, was it a sense of freedom? Like, I still don't know what it is, mm. you know, to be honest. But I don't feel it the same way with lake water. I, mm. I know that. Um, even the large expanse 
of the Great Lakes, right. you know, doesn't have the same kind of feeling. And do you think, I'm just curious, just because I, I'm not as good a surfer as you, but I love it. I am not a great surfer. <laughs> but there's something um, unpredictable about the the ocean and being in it and having to sort of uh, sort of surrender to it because you can't predict it at all. And so you just kind of roll with the punches, roll Absolutely. with the waves. There's something incredibly humbling um, about the power of the ocean. And, you know, you're constantly reminded of it when you're in the water, you know, at, 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 at various points and hopefully not uh, in an overly severe way. Yeah. Uh, but there is something that really forces you to be grounded in the moment, paying a lot of attention, and yet also incredibly relaxed and, and in tune with the natural surrounding. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm, you know, absolutely most at home in the ocean um, and in the forest. And, and again, very odd thing for, you know, uh, a person who grew up in, in the city. Yeah. To yeah. feel. To feel that way. Mm -hmm. And then you spent time, um, as I said, in, in forestry project management as well. So that, that was a forest part. Yeah, absolutely. And that was an amazing experience. You know, I, I uh, first uh, got into it through mutual friends who were squash players. And I was looking for a summer job when I was 18. And it was a great way to stay in shape uh, through the summer, which was typically an off season for squash. Uh, and I first started tree planting when I was when I was 18. It was a sort of a Canadian youth rite of passage, I think, for many university students. Um, and after a couple years planting, I was promoted into sort of, you know, uh, being a foreman and a supervisor. And it was a great opportunity to get outside in the summer. Mm -hmm. And that was probably where my strongest bonds with really being in a natural landscape, although, you know, Principally, you spend most of your time in a clear cut, which is a very challenging, um, it's a very challenging landscape. Mm -hmm. um, what makes it challenging? Well, the... Exposure you know, to the elements? Like... I would say it's more the, the psychology of what's happened mm -hmm. in the landscape in the aftermath of clear cut logging. Right. Um, and, you know, a lot of these areas which were licensed as tree farms, they would be monstrous clear cuts as far as you could see. Uh, and then, you know, I, I ended up doing that for almost 10 years from the time I was 18 until I started um, my master's of architecture at UBC. Mm -hmm. uh, and through that time, I did a lot of planting, I did a lot of um, supervising project management, a lot of logistics, and it was a really great opportunity to learn about managing people, project management, uh, how to workflow. Yes. Yeah. How to, yeah. how to creatively problem solve when you had several million trees and, you know, two dozen people mm -hmm. and you had to get the trees in the ground in crazy places. You know, we were living on boats and barges in logging camps in bush camps uh, obscure motels in, in yeah. really small towns and survivor and, man. <laughs> well, it, it was interesting because there were definitely moments when you felt, uh, that you were very exposed to the elements. Mm. Absolutely. And there was also kind of a meditative contemplative aspect to the work because you would largely spend, you know, 
hours on end, eight, 10 hours a day by yourself or with a single planting partner, very, very focused, mm -hmm. you know, and it was piecework. So we were getting paid at that time anywhere from six cents a tree to maybe 11 cents a tree. Wow. And so you really yeah. had to plant a lot of trees yeah. each day to make uh, a decent wage. Mm. And the thing that was very, very interesting in Ontario, these were, you know, monoculture tree farms. We were planting a lot of pine uh, predominantly. There was a few species of spruce. And then as I, as I had the opportunity to um, experience and, and work in other provinces, which was one of the things that was really great, you know, you got to see a lot of the sort of northern landscape, first in Ontario, Quebec, Manitoba, Alberta, and then finally BC. Mm -hmm. And part of that sort of migration out west that took me down to Mexico also took me to Vancouver Island, um, where I really first experienced the majesty of, you know, old growth forests and, you know, the, the sort of smaller trees that we were planting in these very tightly organized corridors and grids in Ontario uh, was, was entirely different from these incredibly technical, steep landscapes that we were being dropped off by helicopter, you know, into the middle of and, and navigating with, you know, one inch metal spikes on the bottoms of our, of our boots and and scaling you know these rock faces planting trees it was a, an incredible dangerous incredible experience. actually yeah th there yeah. are definitely stories of, of people getting very badly injured mm. um but it was it was a, an extremely sort of exhilarating um segment of the profession and and you know through that experience in silviculture and and learning other parts of of you know the the sort of complexities of, of forest maintenance. I did some brush saw spacing, some chainsaw spacing contracts. Uh, there was creek clearing, there was slash burning. You really got to, to really spend a lot of time in these remote landscapes and these amazing landscapes. And through that period, I really developed um, a love for Vancouver Island. Um, and did I'm, it feel like home when you saw the trees here? Like you, you say the majesty of trees, the trees here. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, there's something that's so compelling about, um, you know, and, and I don't know, maybe it's because it feels like a, a kind of primordial landscape, or maybe primordial is not the right word. But it, again, it's about providing perspective. You know, when you see a, a tree that is a thousand years old, mm -hmm. um, and also the, the understanding of seeing a tree that was a thousand years old that was cut down you know, and extracted and harvested. And, and especially when you understand, um, I think a lot of the challenges that, that happen in the forest industry here in the sense that in, in BC, we export a lot of raw logs, um, rather than, you know, uh, engaging in manufacturing to actually do something with those materials. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is a, a sort of a third world economic model. Mm. And then when did architecture really come in for you? You went to, did you go to Greece or did you go to Europe first? No, I had, um, I had uh, decided 
there was a grant opportunity to that was being offered to people who'd spent a certain amount of time in the forest industry. And I think really the grants were re-education grants for people who at that point were sort of lifers, mm. you know, people who uh, at that time I would have been in my mid-20s. And I think they were intended for people who were much older, but I and, and a number of my friends had qualified for these re-education grants. And it was the perfect opportunity to finally um, go to architecture school. And so that's what I did. And it was really um, studying architecture. And ironically, I, I was faced with the same old dilemma. Do I go to the University of Toronto Architecture School again now, eight years later? Um, or this time, do I go to the University of British Columbia? Because I had been living at West, you know, for, for a number of years at that time. And, and living at West, you know, really living in the landscape, spending the majority of my time outside in a kind of nomadic lifestyle, a number of years living in, in my van, sort of between contracts. And, and uh, it, was, uh, it was probably that, that period, which I think was about three or four years of not really having a fixed address, of, of mm. being mobile, um, that, that I think cemented my sort of affinity for spending time outside. And, and you know, it, I think it's really interesting. I, I have these conversations with my daughter, who's 13. She loves watching horror movies. And, you know, this idea that nature is a frightening place or a scary place, you know, the, the idea that, that, that forests are where spirits live. They live, and, yeah, and, monsters. And, yeah, yeah, and, you know, I, I would never suggest that, that, you know, it would be untrue that spirits live in the forest. But the idea of, you know, going for a walk at night in the forest and just sitting with her or standing with her, you know, and, and like, you know, if you have a flashlight, turning the flashlight off and just sitting in kind of stillness and absorbing everything that's going around on around you and the kind of energy of, of those places, I think, is a, a really amazing opportunity. And I think that's, you know, when I when I was first working in forestry, as a as a supervisor or as a foreman, a lot of what you would do is you would set up um, the cut blocks, the areas that were being planted for your crew the next day. So the whole crew would come home, you would eat dinner, and then you would go back out into the field, but you would do it by yourself, mm. you know, or maybe with one other person. And you'd be in, in these vast landscapes on your own at night, sometimes working through the whole night. Uh, and you really, I think, come to terms with, being out in, very solitary, in those environments. Sounds yeah, like. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So does Nova love nature as much as you? I think so. I would, I, I, you know, I'm optimistic that she, <laughs> she will. Um, we certainly have made a point um, of spending as much time in nature as, as we can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, you both, you and Miranda both love, love, love nature, which is. Yeah, great. absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and do you guys still have your, your mushroom club? Uh, yeah, it's, you know, we, we haven't been as active with it um, because I, <laughs> I really injured my knee very badly in August. And of course, you know, the prime forging time is sort of the fall, September, October, November. So I was doing no forging. Oh, yeah, um, that, that went on fall. hold for a little bit. Yeah, so I'd say it's, it's on pause. <laughs> but, you know, we still really love being outside foraging. Mm -hmm. um, and we did, uh, I would say, Miranda and the kids did a little more than than I did this yeah, year. Yeah, they foraged for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so then in, uh, I, I do remember reading somewhere that 
uh, a mentor once told you that it's time to op open your own practice when uh, it becomes intolerable intolerable to work for someone else. And so 2015, you opened up your own studio, Lucky Studio. Yeah, 2015, I opened up Lecky Studio, but it was actually five years prior, six years prior in 2009 that I started um, independent professional practice. Mm. Uh, and I had a, a previous practice with a former business partner, and we were doing primarily houses um, at that time, and neither of us were registered architects. Uh, and we were really just kind of finding our way. Um, and it became apparent that we had... Um, different ideas about professional practice and, and our own, um, you know, sense of finding our way. And so in 2015, uh, I launched Lecky Studio, uh, and it's been an incredible learning opportunity, and I feel very fortunate to have a whole studio of talented people working with me. Yeah, and it's interdisciplinary, you call it, right? Yes, we, you know, we have architects, interior designers, we've had... Um, an industrial designer, graphic designer mm -hmm. um, on staff. And, you know, we really understand, uh, you know, an approach that is, you know, rooted in making, um, but at its heart is really trying to expand beyond the traditional boundaries of architectural practice. And in some ways, you know, that means looking at things that, um, you know, mainstream architectural practice has maybe overlooked in a way. We're, we're very fascinated with the idea of the built environment. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think architects are really responsible for such a small percentage of the built environment worldwide. You know, I, I, would, I would speculate that it's less than 1%. Oh, wow. Um, and in many ways, the culture of the architect and this idea about only wanting to produce iconographic works of architecture um, has really, um, you know, moved the profession into, uh, I would say, a kind of precarious position um, in ways in that so much of what's happening in, in you know, the landscape, whether it's an urban or a rural landscape, is happening without the involvement of architects. And I think that's a, a, a real missed opportunity um, mm. on the part of the profession. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that the culture of your practice is very important to you. So what values does your studio operate by? Wow. Well, we have, you know, we have a number of, of core values that are really clearly spelled out. And I think at the root of it all is an idea of a kind of vulnerability in practice. Um, and, you know, the idea that the studio is a safe place to explore ideas, that we approach the work with a kind of um, a lack of ego. And we try to identify and formulate a project brief that really sets out the terms of reference for every project. Uh, and we understand that the project work is really trying to deliver the best version of a project for our clients. And it's not necessarily about the idea of authorship or what we want. It's about what the project needs. And I think when you lay that out as a set of reference points and as a methodology, the conversations in the studio become much simpler because it's not about, you know, one person's point of view being right or wrong or better or worse. It's about understanding 
you know, a series of synthetic opportunities that might arise in the process and where those might lead. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's where it gets really, really interesting. And, you know, my goal is, you know, modeled after a, a couple of studios that I've been very fortunate um, to work in and, and that I, you know, or even some perhaps that I that I have admired from afar. But, you know, the idea for me of an ideal studio would be that you would have a group of people that were working together for decades and this kind of phenomenon of a collective consciousness that develops from that form of sort of close-knitted work or closely knit working relationship mm. because so much of creative process is about the idea of trying to communicate ideas within the team and you know mobilize and explore and 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 develop a, a sort of project and if you imagine this idea of fidelity you know and sometimes fidelity is a, a lack of fidelity is where happy accidents happen and interesting things kind of evolve but if you have a team of people that when you when you show a project or you show a reference point or you look at a precedent or you say a word, everybody's on the same yeah, page. Everybody just gets it. Yeah. Then you take out so much of the time that is otherwise spent just trying to communicate clearly and eloquently about what you mean when you're talking about something. Right. Oh, I like this idea of creative collective consciousness within a within a, a group of colleagues yeah that's teammates. that's it mm. yeah and you know i th in 2019 uh the studio was really starting to grow we found ourselves approaching 30 people um and you know i, I didn't necessarily have an intention to grow the studio to a specific number i had always felt um that you know, 16, 18, 20 was an interesting number because it allowed you to take on projects of a certain size and scale. It allowed you to take on a certain number of projects at a specific time. And probably most importantly, it allowed us to have enough bandwidth that we could, we could have some margin for play. Mm. Um, and I think one of the things I noticed when, you know, the practice was very small, it was just myself, and, and a few people is that we were always running, you know, flat out to meet every single deadline. And it was, it was very, very challenging. And, and mm -hmm. perhaps that's a, an artifact of, of ambition, but I have noticed that, you know, as the studio has grown, some more of that, that bandwidth can be freed up for, you know, exploration, research, diversion, you know, these right. kinds of things. Right. Yeah. And I, I know that we've we've talked about this before, but you're very supportive of female architects, and and you've got I think I think you have quite a few on your team. Yes, we we're you know very mindful and intentionally trying to create um, you know a workplace that that has uh, gender parity, and it's and it's not easy. Um, and you know I think we're focused on ideas of diversity and inclusion also not easy not easy in the profession of architecture um and so these are things that we're mindful of um you know i think the idea um, just to finish the thought that i was saying a minute ago is that in 2019 the practice was uh, growing to approach 30 people and i realized it was really getting too big for my own comfort level and and you know prior to covid 
um, I had a sense of, of scaling the practice back down to what felt like a more manageable level. And so right now we're, we're uh, in and around the 18 person okay. level. Yeah. And, and that feels a lot more manageable. It means that we say no to a lot of projects. Mm-hmm. Um, but in doing so, I think it forces us to be more rigorous about only taking on projects that are a true reflection of our core values right. and working with clients um, that that share those values or at least value them, you know, in in what we bring to uh, a project. Yeah, there's much more alignment. Yeah. Mm. And you were saying earlier um, when we were not recording that um, you're, you're bringing analog back into your studio. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, and, I, and you know, I, I think that um, this... This is rooted in certain aspects of my own, you know, kind of personal preoccupations and fascinations. Um, The first five years of the practice, we've been uh, very heavily reliant on a digital process. Um, A lot of 3D modeling, virtual modeling, rendering, uh, and and that process has served us very well. Um, But the tools that you use to explore ideas you know, have a direct influence on the manner in which you in, engage the ideas and, and develop work. And, and you know, for quite a while now, I have really wanted to um, to bring some more analog tools. So really, you know, more hand drawing. Uh, many of the architects in this, that I work with in the studio, including myself, really love sketching. Um, but also model making and the idea of, you know, making study models, making... Um, you know, presentation models, conceptual models. And I'm really excited. In May, we're moving the studio to a new studio space. Oh, congrats. Where are you moving to? Um, Yukon and Seven. Okay. Yes. That's not too far from mine, so I know the area well. I'm really excited because the new studio lease that we have is going to provide us with access to um, a sizable um, creative workshop on premises. Wow. So it's going to be fantastic. There's going to be a whole host of woodworking tools, CNC machine, woodshop technician. And so I am really, really excited. (laughs) Sounds like your dream. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really, really excited because for years we were talking about trying to create a woodshop in the studio, but there's a huge capital investment in materials and then someone to run it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very challenging, not to mention finding the right zoning and you know, space mm-hmm. that would accommodate that and insurance and all the rest. So this is uh, this is a really fantastic opportunity. And, and, I, and I would say, you know, in this is also reflected, I think, something, you know, in, in myself as I've been really exploring, um, you know, these kind of ideas of, of analog culture. You know, I've, I've been... Um, collecting a lot of records over the last couple of years and really becoming interested in analog sound and the difference between analog and digital sound. I've been building uh, tube amps. Wow. Uh, which has been really, really interesting. And the, the quality of the sound that comes out of those amps and changing the tubes and looking at the different configurations um, and, you know, building turntables recently uh, which has been really, really fun. And again, it's, you know, I think about this craving to be doing things with your hands mm-hmm. and, and assembling things and putting things together. 
So many projects, so many projects that you have on the go. Yeah, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, I have a really bad sense of time. Anybody who <laughs> knows me knows this. And it's not that, you know, in the sense of, of deadlines. I mean, we're very focused on working with a sense of urgency in the studio and, and accountability and meeting deadlines. My problem is in doing so, I sometimes can't tell if some if a conversation that we had would have been, you know, three weeks ago, three months ago, or three years ago, because time just flies by while you're trying to do all these things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I had a question about um, your approach to design and this last year. Has there, has what's happened in the world at all shifted the way you approach design? Um, you know, I, I, I think the pandemic has allowed us or created or forced um, in us an opportunity to rethink many of the things that, that we had just taken, um, you know, for granted in a way. Mm. I feel like I spent, you know, five years trying to create the ideal open plan workspace um, for my studio. And then all of a sudden, you know, COVID hit and still three quarters of my studio are working from home. Um, and I think we've been very fortunate in a way because our digital process and our fluidity in that digital collaboration and, and several of the tools we use really allowed us to transition seamlessly to working remotely. And so, you know, for me, when I look at the, at the, you know, the pandemic, A, I, I feel incredibly grateful and fortunate that, you know, our industry has been deemed as an essential service. Um, you know, friends and, and colleagues who work in other industries, I think, have been hit yeah, in a very, very challenging way. You know, mm -hmm. the restaurant industry, for example, we were talking about this earlier. Um, and so we, we feel very fortunate and, and obviously wanting to um, place a high priority on, on the safety and welfare of, of my studio team meant that we all started working remotely very early. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, there is something I feel that is lost in a certain dimension of the culture of having everybody in a, in a collaborative space. There was something about the, the studio environment and, and, you know, we, we've always had a lot of fun in the studio. Yeah. There's, there's the energy like yeah. that can only happen when you're in real life with someone sometimes. Yeah. And you know, we're the kind of studio where we play records and we play music mm. and, you know, we celebrate people's birthdays and, you know, we talk about things that we're doing and that we're interested in. And, and, you know, I think that makes the work, it enhances the kind of creative process in a way, mm -hmm. you know, it's a place where people can be themselves. So, you know, in, in addition to the, the challenges of, of, you know, working remotely, I think that we've seen, um, you know, because we're a, I don't know, I would say, are we a generalist practice? I'm not sure if, if that's really the right term, but we were, you know, we're fairly diversified, I guess I would say. Um, we do modernist custom single family homes. Um, you know, on-grid, off-grid. We work in sort of boutique retail and hospitality. We've done um, co-working spaces, mm -hmm. uh, creative workplace. We do multifamily residential um, and a lot of work in, in affordable housing. Yeah. Um, Would and you consider a backcountry hut company part of this or is that a separate? The backcountry hut company sort of combines... Um, 
a lot of, I would say, some of the interests and opportunities that, you know, that have come from those interests in, in professional practice. And like I was saying earlier, you know, the idea of paying attention to small scale structures that people might not normally use an architect for. Mm-hmm. And the Backcountry Hut Company was was born out of a, you know, a simple question, which was how could we help people in remote locations, you know, assemble architecture themselves and have it, you know, turn out successfully. Yeah, it's become quite a you've you've got quite a following now. I you know, it's it's been a passion project for 5 years yeah. and you know, it um uh, over the last couple of years, we've been refining our prototypes and developing our systems. Um, and, you know, we've got, I think we have 10 built projects now. Wow. We're planning on another 10 in this 2021 year. And and then we're going to really start to scale the business mm-hmm. up. But we've been, we've been you know, moving um, very intentionally and, and carefully um, and, and, field testing our prototypes. And it's been an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I think one of the things that is, is you know, interesting about that um, is that part of the, the goal is to really provide people with agency and invite participation into the process. And so much of the work that we do in the rest of the practice, you know, the Lucky Studio work, it's so intentional and and focused and 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 you know crafted that with the backcountry hut company for me it's been a real process of if you're going to invite people in to participate and have agency in the design process and you're going to give them the tools <laughs> to build something themselves Kind you of have to let it go. You have to let it go. <laughs> and it's it hasn't been easy, I have to say. You know, it, it really hasn't been easy. And and you know, Wilson, who's a my partner in the Backcountry Hut Company, uh, co-founder and and a childhood friend of mine, you know, I, I think is constantly amused at how tormented <laughs> I am um in, in that process of of letting go. Mm. You know, but that but that really is is the truth. If 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 you want to empower people to have agency, you you have to you know be willing to accept the the results of that. And mm. and and so you know for me there's a there's a fair bit of compartmentalization about the work that we do and you know in 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 different sectors for different clients. Oh, for sure. So I want to take it, this away from design and and go to you as a human. Um, we were talking earlier that you went through a fairly difficult fall uh, fall season because you blew out your knee unexpectedly. Yes. yes. And uh, knowing you and how busy you are, what did you learn about yourself, not only with the pandemic slowdown, but this additional slowdown with the injury? What what came up for you as someone who's typically busy and mobile and always in action? Yeah, it was a it was a very sort of challenging moment for me. You know, it was a fairly serious injury. I had um, uh, dislocated my kneecap. And as a result, my knee hyperextended uh, and uh, needed a, a full sort of reconstruction, surgical reconstruction, which resulted in me being on crutches for 10 to 12 weeks. Um, and, you know, really, really in a lot of pain for, I would say, the, the better part of, you know, 30 to 45 days, largely, you know, in bed, working, um, and, and trying to really um, provide an optimum 
condition for for the kind of recovery process. Um, you know, and and it's interesting when you go through that kind of a process. I mean, I, you know, having been a uh, an athlete my whole life, I, you know, I certainly have had my fair share of injuries. Um, probably actually more so than most people. Um, and spent a lot of time in the hospital with broken bones and getting thin things stitched up again. Um, but, uh, you know, an injury like that, um, and one of the things that was terrifying, I was saying, was that for a week after the injury, I couldn't lift my right foot. And, and that to me was, um, you know, it really, it really was terrifying, this idea that I might not be able to walk um, and, you know, the, the surgeon, I had really phenomenal care, um, uh, in Nanaimo. Um, and, uh, you know, the surgeon sort of said to me in a, in a matter of fact way, oh yeah, there's, you know, you've got nerve trauma down your lower leg, you know, more often than not. Um, people will get the motion of their foot back. And I was sort of mm. like, more often than not, like what, you know. <laughs> That's as, not as, a good percentage to me. <laughs> yeah, as a kind of type A person, I was like, well, we need, to, we need to talk about this a little bit more. Like, you know, what can I be doing? You know, this kind of thing. But um, having, you know, I, I was fortunate, and perhaps it was because of the severity of the injury, to uh, have surgery within a week. Um, and, you know, is a fairly invasive surgery. And then, of course, I had, you know, all these prescriptions and, you know, opioid uh, painkillers. Uh, and, you know, we, we all understand, especially living in this city, that we're, we're in the midst of, a, you know, an opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I sort of uh, made a decision. They sort of gave me two primary painkillers. And they said, take these for a couple of days. You're really going to need them. And then take these if you if you absolutely need to. Uh, and it was interesting. And there were a lot of pills there. Mm -hmm. And I took the the first round because I, you know, did really need to. The pain was excruciating. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, just to put things into perspective, I had ruptured my ACL, my MCL, my LCL, and my IT band came detached. And so Everything. it was a, it was a fairly, yeah, um, it, you know, it was a, a fairly traumatic incident. Um, and I, and I took the first series of pills and they didn't make me feel great. And it was sort of a, a kind of blur for probably about seven days. And then I decided not to take the second set and it was really just, you know, Tylenol. Yeah. And that was very, very challenging as well. Just the, the discomfort, particularly at night, wearing a brace, trying to sleep, trying to work, you know, all of these things. But, but, you know, I think that the thing that, you know, really, I think the message that I, that I took out of all of that was, you know, that maybe it was time to slow down a little mm. and maybe it was time to focus. And, and I think this was part of what I was saying earlier about trying to find the ideal size for the studio and focus on the projects that, you know, allow us to make the most meaningful impact you know, in terms of building a body of work and, and working with clients where we, we feel we can, um, you know, I, I think really, really achieve something positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is, do you have any, you know, when you were going through all of this, um, what do you do to, you know, calm, calm your anxiety? Like, what are your, what are your methods? Oh, I meditate. You meditate. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I think when my 
life has been, you know, in its probably optimal state of balance. I've been meditating as much as an hour a day. Wow. Um, but usually it's, you know, admittedly, it's, it's less than that. I think if I can, you know, meditate for 12 to 20 minutes, three to five times a week, that really, really helps. Mm. Um, and just sort of provides the kind of perspective. And a lot of it is, for me anyway, a, a kind of physiological thing. Um, you know, everybody talks about architects and coffee and and uh, really trying to um, reduce the uh, the sort of, um, I guess, kind of uh, hypersensitivity of the nervous system. You know, always in that feeling that you have a million things on the go and mm -hmm. you're just kind of moving from one to the other and the tiger is chasing you and, and this kind of idea of, of, you know, someone who has a lot of different things on the go, I suppose. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and, and combined with priorities of parenting and, you know, all, all of this stuff. So um, meditation really certainly helps, helps put things in perspective. And you can surf again. Just, you know, <laughs> so this injury was six months ago and they had said, oh, you know, you'll be a year to recover, maybe nine months. And then, you know, I heard any any year that sorry, any month that you can shave off that 12 month recovery will be a <laughs> blessing. And so six months later, I've just started surfing again, which is really, really um, great because it, it sort of combines a lot of, you know, the time in nature, the meditative aspect exercise, which leads mm -hmm. to better sleep. Um, and, and that's really the kind of other component. Um, you know, meditation, exercise, exercise has always been a key one for me. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, you know, you can easily go back to the four pillars and talk about meditation, exercise, nutrition and sleep. And, yeah. you know, when you when you get all of those things, totally optimal. Balanced, it's You're amazing. Super <laughs> yeah, it is so hard to do, though. It's so hard to do. Well, I have to give you and Miranda a sound healing session. Oh, that would be soon. great. And and the kids, too. Yeah, that yeah, would be yeah. amazing. Actually, kids really respond really well to, to sound healing. So yeah, well, I, I've actually um, Nova has uh, been to a sound bath with me before. Oh, yes. Yeah, you, you have told yeah, me this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'm I'm um, yeah, very much aligned with, oh, with what you're doing. I think it's fantastic it. work. It's, it's been it's been really um, a wonderful experience getting into it. Yeah. We could take that one offline because okay. this is about you. <laughs> um, I'm just mindful of the time just because I know that you're very busy. And um, this question is actually about Nova. Um, as a father, what are you most proud of in terms of her personality and how she sees the world? Oh, geez, that's a great question. I, I mean, I, I would start that question by saying, um, you know, to be the father of a daughter is such an amazing opportunity. And it really, you know, affects the way you understand the relationship between male and female gender and energy. And I've learned so much, you know, just through that process of, of um, you know, raising her. Uh, to this age, I mean, 13, we're, we're only at that point, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of challenge, challenge <laughs> on the horizon. Oh, they're coming. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, I think I'm very, very proud of the fact that she has a very open mind and that she's very curious. 
and you know that there's a kind of she has a kind of calmness which I really I really appreciate um, and you know she has a what I would hope or would interpret as uh, you know a very kind of strong sense of self she's not caught up in you know trends or what you know messages that are coming from media she seems very grounded um, and it's it's really wonderful uh, to see and and you know that that may change it may flow. ebb and flow over mm -hmm. time but she started high school this year and it's a very strange time to start high school I think about you know my earliest memories of high school and again I was I was a, a, a kid that was very introverted and probably suffered from some social anxiety um, which is funny because everybody always thinks I'm an extrovert which I'm not I've just somehow been in this position of mm -hmm. you know constantly having to, to talk to people and lead and rally people but I find it enormously draining uh, and you know, I remember going off to high school and literally having panic attacks, mm. you know, at the enormity of it all. Um, and uh, I think she's doing really, really well, you know, and I'm, I'm so um, delighted to see the way that she's kind of adjusting and, and, you know, now starting to have her own kind of interest and develop her own sensibility. You know, she came to me last year and said, you know, for my for my Genius Hour project, I want to study lucid dreaming. Wow. And I thought, this is amazing. I didn't even know what lucid dreaming yeah. was when I was 12 years old or 13 years old. I have a story for you after we shut off the recording, um, sort of related to lucid dreaming and astral projection. So anyways, <laughs> um, one final question for you, Michael. With what you do, what is that that you want to leave behind in this world? Oh, that's a good question. And it's something actually that that, you know, I, I really do think about. Um, you know, I think about that as an architect. I think about that as a parent. I think about that as a partner in a relationship. Um, you know, and I think it's possible to answer that question in a number of different ways. You know, I would say, um, you know, as, as a parent, uh, and I say this to Nova, you know, my role and responsibility is to help her find her place in the world, you know, and show her what I've learned about the universe or the world, you know, from a, a kind of humble perspective and ways that I've been able to find my place in it and, and hopefully teach her what I've learned and, you know, let that inform her develop the development of her own attitudes and opinions and, and journey mm. in that way. Um, to answer that question, you know, um, you know, from a relationship point of view, I think it's about finding someone to share the joys of, of kind of existence with, you know, and, and whether it's travel, music, creation, um, or even just, you know, a cup of coffee or a walk, you know, in the forest. Uh, from a professional point of view, I think it's, it's in some ways, a little more challenging. Um, you know, I, I think that architecture, because of its uh, time scale and in many ways um, its permanence, you know, you tend to really think about, you know, what you're doing. There's also a huge investment in, in the creation of architecture, not just in, 
from the point of view of the architectural team, but from the point of view of the clients and the builder, you know, the collaborators and, and you know, unifying everybody towards a kind of common goal. So inherently you want the work to be meaningful um, mm -hmm. because you really are trying to rally, a, you know, a, a huge number of people to towards its production. And so, you know, I, I think the, the idea would be that if, if we were to put it on the, the scale of buildings is to create buildings that, you know, that that bring a sensibility and a beauty into the world and to create buildings and places that are loved by people, you know, and I think ultimately that is, you know, what's what's meaningful in, in the practice of architecture. And, and that can occur across many different types of project and, and many different scales. Mm. Well, I look forward to continuing to see what you put out in the world. And Thank having you. more of these conversations. It's been so long. Yes, um, it has. Yeah. It has. I, I, you know, and this is one of the, I think, you know, where I notice um, the biggest challenge in the kind of pandemic is, you know, again, as, as someone who's more introverted and probably tends to work a lot, uh, you know, it's easy for me to keep my head down and, and be working and, you know, and, and, and sort of going about my, 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 you know, pursuing my, my various indulgences and, and uh, diversions. But I really do find that I miss the kind of social interaction, you know, even, even just the, the catching up with friends and hearing what people are up to. And, yeah. and you know, I, I think that is maybe one of the things that, you know, social media, when it's used effectively, can do. Um, you know, you actually can stay in touch with friends and understand what they're doing and, and help reach out and celebrate their moments, you know, and, and I was saying this when we started talking today that, you know, when I saw that you launched the craft, I immediately reached out and said, oh, my God, congratulations. Yeah. This is so great. You yes, know, and, and so, you know, maybe maybe the Internet can be more than just a, you know, a giant shopping mall and social media can be more than just, you know, constructed mechanism for FOMO. I, yeah, you know, it can I'm be optimistic. intentional, too. I'm, I'm, optimistic. I'm optimistic as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, Always a pleasure. Welcome. Thank you. If you enjoyed that last conversation, be sure to check out more episodes of The Craft on Spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com. Thanks again for listening.